all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God for the world. speaking about reform. So I thought I'd open it up a little bit and ask you the first question. What needs reform in the body of Christ? who are visitors with us from time to time, we have a conversational sermon, which is good on a day like today, when I'm a little bit under the weather. Maybe I should say I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do what? said this the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing <laughs> that was Stephen Covey but first things first it was well received and quoted and, and yet we've forgotten already and sometimes a lot about what worship is about is remembering what the main thing is and this is our text today the Pharisees walk in and perhaps they thought, man, the Sadducees were silenced by Jesus. Let's one-up them and see if we can't stump Jesus. So trying to, to test him, what does is, what is the expert in the law ask? What is, well, they begin with, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, and I love that. It's almost as if they're trying this intellectual game with them. 
And as was said at Free For All on Tuesday, though he was asked a belief question, he responded with a relational answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something very important. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The main thing is that we keep the main thing the main thing. Relationship is most important. And that seems sort of elementary to say and to build a whole sermon around. But it behooves me to say it again and reiterate it and expound on it. In fact, I love what Herb said at Free For All. We can explicate the text without implementing the text. We can explain it. We can deconstruct it. And we love to do that. But relationship is more important even perhaps than belief. Let me explain. Richard Rohr has this great quote. He's a great thinker, writer, leader of the Center for Contemplation and Action, which is very important. And he talks about the image that is always used in the Bible of the intimate bride and the bridegroom. He says, this is the imagery that's used all throughout the the Bible. Mutual presence, he talks about. Even intimacy is the ultimate goal. Bride and bridegroom are together just for the sake of being together. Presence is the naked language of union of being lost and found in the face of the other, or in Jesus, the very breath of the other. If that is the core meaning of eternal life, then why wouldn't we practice it now, enjoy it now, choose it now? How you get there is where you will arrive. And this is such a key question. Why has so much of Christian history settled for a courtroom instead of a bridal chamber. And then he ends his reflection. It henceforth becomes more, much more important to be connected than to be privately correct. I want, that's a, that's worth some conversation. Agree or disagree? I'll read it again. He ends, it's henceforth much, much more important to be connected than to be privately correct. Michael's got the microphone if someone wants to speak and be heard. Agree or disagree? Okay, Lisa? I agree, and I, whoa, it's hot. It's on. I have that teacher voice. And I think that the words that Kathleen spoke with us this morning. Yes. Um, that, that is the epitome of that statement. Um, 
I, I sat here and I, I thought while she was reading and talked about fear of speaking up and um, I read something I read something in a book this week at the book fair at Holly School and it said um, courage is fear that has said its prayers <laughs> courage is fear that has said its prayers and I, I thought about
Annette, Annette and then Bill. Can you stand up, Annette? Because we don't have the mics on. I think that's what needs to be reformed about the church now is our our, our artificial visions. Mm-hmm. Hey, Bill. I've been looking for peace all my life where I can relax and just be totally content. And I tried when I was in the insurance business. I used power to get there and control. I had 60 people I managed to find it. I tried a lot about, oh, if I had a lot of money, I wouldn't have to worry. It didn't work either. That, that sense of relationship is what sort of undergirds clearly Jesus' ministry and how he lived it out. And, of course, this text can't be one that we gloss over. This has to be the main thing, a, a centerpiece, the, the cornerstone. And it's interesting how he completely flummoxes them. They are sitting here waiting to create this intellectual ping pong match and if you notice that last line it says they went away and what did you catch it no one ever asked another question 
And somebody at Free For All said, perhaps they didn't want to hear another answer. Um, and this happens. I, I want to be clear about, you know, I've told you a little bit about systems theory, and, and families are a system, and churches are a system, and synagogues are systems. And any time someone comes in with a new idea or a new way of doing things, it creates anxiety in the system. And someone usually has to absorb that anxiety, or it comes out in bad ways. It happens in triangulation, in, in, in unhealthy places. And Jesus comes in and shakes up the system. And what's so radical about it is it's not because it's all this new thing. Actually, Jesus is extremely orthodox. This is why it's so maddening. He's extremely orthodox. He's a good Jew. In fact, he comes and he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. Right? But it was that part about fulfilling the law. And the way that he says, my aim is to point the law to relationships with me. And this shift that Jesus is reinterpreting the aim of the law, that's what makes him come undone. Jesus says it's not the outer life that's so important as important. These are important. Where he is one who abides by ritual purity and things. But he says if and you know later and we'll get to this in weeks to come in Matthew, you know it's not about the out Word appearance being right. Back right after this, he lambasts them for you care about your positions and what other people think about you. He says it's not the outer life that's more important. Sabbath practices, ritual purity, observing kosher. He says the aim of the law first is the inner life, is relationship with God and with your brother and sister. This is the aim. This is the purpose of law. And so I think so many times our version of love for God is more akin to, to liking God on Facebook. You know, we can click like God, but when it comes to a relational sense, you have to spend time and attention, focus, and practice, beholding one another. So my question to you is my second question is how do we love God with all our heart and mind and soul how do we keep the main thing loving God the main thing Jerry well I think um, if we expect God to show up every Sunday that's that's sort of the way our ritual we have to be willing to be as patient with each other as we expect God to be with us. I think that's the greatest challenge is we think God is always going to show up for us when we need God. But when it's our turn to show up for each other, and obviously we we are fallible beings, but we are reluctant to to express that same ability of I'm going to show up for you because that's God has shown up for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that people should be able to rely upon us to show up for them. And when I say us, I mean as a community. Um, in that way, to be patient um, when patience is necessary. James? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have seen um, <coughs> talking more about this in the last few weeks is 
how in many different ways and many different places the culture at large and in small ways has responded to Ebola. You see so many people who are panicking. There was even a, a school board in my home county that wanted someone who'd been in South Africa 3,000 miles away where the outbreak is being quarantined for 21 days after they came back from the mission trip. Um, and then on the other side, you see, I'll give a plug here to your Wilshire folks, the, the wonderful ways that they have reached out to the family and friends of Thomas Duncan and the nurses and all of the folks who are working there. Um, one of the things I think hinders us from relationship is fear of what we don't know. Whether it's Ebola, whether it's people who are different either in language or orientation or whatever it might be. If we're so afraid that we clam up and don't reach out, there's no way we can connect. But folks like folks in Wilshire and other folks churches and faith groups that have responded there give me hope that uh, we can find ways to connect with our neighbor and serve what we see in God, which is the, the face of our neighbor. Andy? You, know, you mentioned, you know, how do we love God? But if the Bible says that God is love, how do you love love? Um, so to me, the only way is loving each other like we're talking about and, um, and and I think one of the biggest you know going back to the where does the church need to reform and, and where do we personally need to reform it's that uh, I think too often we if, if what we're doing looks exactly like hate and feels exactly like hate it's probably not really love and whether that's how we treat Ebola victims or the LGBT community or conservatives or liberals or whoever looks like hate, probably hate, and, and to love God, we have to love. I think, yeah, thank you. Um, I, I love this quote from, he's a homiletics professor at Bright Divinity, Lance Pape. He says, too often in the church, love is used as an excuse to take the path of least resistance instead of the path of excellence. When telling the truth would be uncomfortable, we practice equivocation and call it love. How frequently love is code for smiling at biblical illiteracy and winking at theological incompetence. Love is usually not the path of least resistance. And here's another great help when we think about how do we love God what does the word love mean? This is from Matthew's interpretation commentary. It says that in an age when the word love is greatly abused, it's important to remember that the primary component of biblical love is not affection, but commitment. When warm feelings of gratitude may fill our consciousness as we consider all that God has done for us. But it is not warm feelings that Deuteronomy 6.5, which is what Jesus quotes from the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
It's not warm feelings that this Deuteronomy 6.5 demands of us, but rather stubborn, unwavering commitment. Similarly, to love our neighbor, including our enemies, doesn't mean that we must feel affection for them. To love the neighbor is to imitate God by taking their needs seriously. Jesus' response to this Pharisee created a reformation, a revolution. And at the heart of Jesus' question to us is, what are you committed to? How are we loving God and neighbor? Is it a sentimental idea? Something for the embroidered pillow? Or is it about obedience and, as this commentary said, commitment? It's not doctrine, dogma, debates, political agendas. But at the end of the day, he said, who are you committed to? What is the relationship with God and neighbor? And that's important because back to beliefs, you can have all the beliefs you want and be untransformed. You can believe all the quote-unquote right things and be untransformed, not in the image of Christ. But you cannot be untransformed if you're engaged in a loving relationship. Relationship matters most. It's reforming all over the body of Christ. There is hope. And we see it. And as Dick said in his prayer, we are reforming. It happens day by day. It's happening in the Catholic Church when the Pope says in 2013, who am I to judge when speaking about his gay brothers in the church, clergy? I think what he was getting at was the importance of right relationship over being right. Changing belief systems is hard. Let me give you an example. (coughs) Potty training. (laughs) We've begun trying to train Sophie Lee to potty. We read books about going to the potty, books about Hannah and Prudence. We bought her her own potty. It even sings. (laughs) We clap if she sits down and give her cookies and apple juice if she will go. But even though her greatest heroes, Hannah, Prudence, and even her parents go potty, she still resists. Why? Her belief system is that using her diaper is easier and faster. It's convenient. And more importantly, it's what she knows. It's what she knows. It's scary. But we all know, or at least we hope, that one day she will learn to use the potty. And this is just a phase. But imagine if she didn't. Imagine if she always held to this belief that using diapers is better. Well, we would scoff, of course, and say ridiculous to use diapers your whole life when you could use the potty. We call her socially behind, abnormal. What, what all kinds of words would we use? Short-sighted, backward, warped, stubborn, stinky. But we do the same thing in the church. And in our own individual lives, we cling to the belief systems that are easier 
that we know and that it feels safer, and we begin stinking. We're afraid to venture into relationship first that might move us somewhere else. So we're a bunch of grown-ups still in diapers. It's silly, isn't it? I think about, and I end with this, your own sense of reform. I have a very strong feeling that many of you have experienced different iterations of reform in your life, changing the belief systems. I know for me, it was, I grew up in a fundamentalist church. I knew what it meant to adhere to the Ten Commandments. I could do sword drills because I knew the books of the Bible. I could quote the four spiritual laws, and I knew what a purity ring was. More than this, I had so much of my identity wrapped up in these beliefs, these fundamentals, that it was extremely painful and with great reticence that I tried to break out. In fact, I didn't try. In fact, somebody told me I should be a pastor. I said, no, I'm a woman. I mean, this was in my early 20s. And it felt like a divorce. You know, it has that, that kind of horrid sense of this is wrong, but I've got to do it again. It's that sense of right and wrong that you're kind of wrestling with. But in the end, I had one call and one relationship that was foremost. It was God saying, I've called you to this. I said, no, God, you haven't called me to this. I'm a woman. Can we get that clear? This is what the church says. Again, that was my world. My church says no. So I was telling God that. That's my story. And it was really hard to move into a new space because it felt like a divorce from a family. Again, that's where that system stuff comes. It's like I was swapping one belief system for another and moving into this new relational space was uncomfortable. But as Kathleen shared, I knew I had to do it. You have been through similar reforms, but my question today is it didn't matter what age we are, we should always be reforming. There's no such thing as a retired Christian. <laughs> I know it feels like once you arrive, you know, like 60s, it should be sort of like, well, we've made the reforms and here we are. Let's worship God. But the call is that we keep reforming, that we keep challenging each other as iron sharpens iron in a loving relationship, in a loving crucible. That's the that's the challenge. And so this morning, as we conclude and we sit silent to reflect and to respond, let us hear the words of Jesus again. Maybe we should tattoo them on our soul, heart, body, mind, to love God with our whole being. For everything else, the law, Prophets, the beliefs, hang on them.